0: And thanks, Angela. turn to Genesis chapter nine this morning. Genesis chapter nine, and just read from verse twenty as we begin. Genesis chapter nine, verse twenty. And Noah began to be a husbandman. And he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. And when he was uncovered within his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, uh, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment (coughs) and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we <clears throat> thank you Lord for this time this morning that we can come uh, gather in this place and, and spend time together around your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that this morning as we consider uh, this passage that you would speak to our hearts, that you would uh, teach us through your word, that you would refresh us and bless us this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, empower me now and strengthen me. that You give me wisdom and guidance as I preach. That it would be Your words, uh, that Lord. I would say only that which You'd have me to say this morning. And may Lord, You receive all glory, the honor and praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Of course, last Sunday evening we looked at uh, the great covenant that God made with uh, all mankind. That covenant that is passed down to every generation. The covenant that He would never destroy the earth again uh, with a flood. And we looked also, of course, at the, the sign that he gave us, the rainbow, that wonderful sign in the heavens. Every time the, the rain clouds clear, we see that reminder uh, that God is still keeping his promises, that God is still on his throne. And now we come this morning to the end of chapter 9, and uh, we find that the story turns attention now to life after the flood, uh, to life in this, this new earth, this new world. And although Noah lived another 350 years, which is what verse 28 there tells us, it says that Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And so even though he lived another 350 years, we don't read of him having any more sons. And so it falls to these three sons who joined him on the ark, it falls to them to now repopulate the earth. In verse 18 and 19, we are reminded uh, of these three sons it says there in verse 18 and the sons of Noah went, uh, that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth and Ham was the father of Canaan and these are the three sons of Noah and of them was the whole earth overspread and so we're reminded of these three sons we've seen them mentioned before Ham, uh, Shem Ham and Japheth and it's from these three and their wives that now uh, the earth is repopulated. And verse 10, uh, sorry verse 19 makes that clear, where it says, And of them was the whole earth overspread. Okay? So from them, uh, we all are descended. Okay? God's word makes that very clear. And that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because what that means is that in their genetic code was all the, the physical characteristics for all the different races, all the different nations that we, we have today. Okay, in their genetic code was all the different hair color, the different eye color, uh, the different skin color. All those things was in their genetic makeup. And so as they then uh, repopulated the earth and their descendants were fruitful and multiplied, we ended up with the races that we have today. In verse 25 to 27, uh, Noah is going to give us a prophecy concerning his three sons and their descendants. Okay, verse 25 it says, and he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And so these verses here, Noah gives us a prophecy concerning his three sons and indeed their descendants. And then in chapter 10, we read of their descendants. Okay, we're, we're given a genealogy. We read of all their descendants and we're given an indication, if you like, of the nations that descend from each son. Uh, So we can sort of trace back our heritage, if you like. But before we get to either of those passages, we have recorded for us here in verse 20 to 24 this uh, sad event uh, recorded for us here. And you know what this event really tells us is that even though God has cleansed the world through a flood... Sin still exists on the earth. Mankind is still a sinner. Sin still exists and even someone as godly as Noah can fall into sin. So this morning as we consider this sad story before us, uh, we not only see Noah's shame because of his sin, but we also see the true character of his three sons revealed unto us this morning. So notice first with me, Noah's disgrace. You see Noah's disgrace. Look there in verse 20. This is, Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken. And when he was uncovered within his tent, i sorry, and he was uncovered within his tents. Verse 20, we're told now of Noah's life after the flood. <clears throat> he obviously exits the The ark there upon Mount Ararat and travels down probably to the plains below. And there he begins his life anew. And we're told that he's a husbandman or he's a farmer. And so his life now is one of uh, hard work, tilling the ground, living by the sweat of his brow. And on his farm, we're told that he plants a vineyard. He's growing grapes uh, after the flood as well. And from these grapes, we're told in verse 21 that Noah, (coughs) he takes of these grapes and he Crushes them and he makes it into wine. Okay, it says there in verse 21, and he drank of the wine. So this is the very first mention in the word of God of wine. The very first time we see it. It's important we understand that the word wine (coughs) is used in the word of God to refer to both alcoholic wine and simply just a grape juice as well. Okay, it's used to refer to both depending on the context and here it's very clear that the wine that Noah makes here is an alcoholic beverage. Okay? He makes an alcoholic wine. It says that he drank of the wine and was drunken. So he becomes drunk. He becomes intoxicated here by drinking this wine. And so what we have here for us this morning mentioned in chapter 9 here is the very first mention of alcohol in the Word of God. The very first time we see strong drink, wine mentioned, and it's mentioned in connection with what drunkenness and shame very first time God God's word talks about it it's mentioned in connection with sin It's not talked about in a good light and indeed it never is in the Word of God. now some have tried to excuse Noah's sin here by suggesting that you know he didn't know what he was doing. you know this is the very first time someone uh, created uh, wine someone has Uh, fermented the wines, the very first time it's happened. So Noah did this in ignorance. Noah didn't know what he was doing. Some have even tried to suggest that before the flood, grape juice didn't ferment. That somehow because of the difference in the earth's atmosphere, that grape juice didn't ferment before now, and so now after the flood, this is something completely new. Well, this is a suggestion that has no scientific basis at all. And really what it is, is it's just an attempt to make an excuse for Noah. We don't like seeing godly men fall into sin, do we? And so men have tried to give an excuse here. It seems clear that, this, that while this is the first mention of wine in the Word of God, this is not the first time that men have made wine or an alcohol and, and drank of it, partaked, partaken of it. You know, we can be sure that with all the sin and wickedness that was taking place back in chapter 6 that led to the flood, we can be sure that alcohol was involved. Okay? That they, they knew what they were doing. Okay? Men before the flood knew how to ferment the grape juice and they also were well aware of what its effects were. And So the point is here, we can't make an excuse for Noah. Okay? Noah knew exactly what he was doing. There's nothing in the passage, nothing here to suggest otherwise. No one knew what he was doing. He picked the grapes, he crushed the grapes in the wine press, he put the juice in the the wine skin and he let it ferment. And then he partook, he knowingly partook. And he found himself drunk and naked in his tent. You know, it's a sad picture indeed, isn't it? This is Noah. This is the one who found grace in the eyes of God. When the rest of mankind was condemned, Noah was God's righteous man, the one who by faith was living and following God. You know, you think about it, for years, for hundreds of years, Noah had been faithful to God. He'd withstood all the attacks of evil. You know, he lived in Genesis chapter 6. He'd lived in that world of sin and wickedness and violence. And Noah had stood apart during that time. And then as he's he's building the ark in obedience to God, he faced that that steady onslaught of opposition and ridicule as he's building the ark. And throughout all that time, he'd faithfully preached righteousness, as the New Testament tells us. He'd been the preacher of righteousness unto men. And now when all of that is past, he'd gone through the flood safely delivered by God's grace, he's now in this new earth, this new world, when all that's passed and it seems like it's now peace, doesn't it? And it's easy. Now is when he lets his guard down and sadly, Noah falls into sin. And so often this is the way, isn't it? After a great victory, when the battle is over, that spiritual battle is over, where things are seemingly easier, that's when we let our guard down. And we find ourselves falling into sin. We think we're safe. We think we're easy and then we fall into sin. You know, in the New Testament, Peter warns us about the danger of letting our guard down, doesn't he? First Peter chapter 5, I'm sure we know the verse well, but let's turn there. <clears throat> First Peter 5. First Peter 5 and verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Peter tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, to be alert, to be watchful, to not let our guard down. Why? Because the devil's walking around seeking whom he may devour, seeking whom he may lead into sin, may destroy. And sadly, that's what happened here to Noah. Noah let his guard down. He let his guard down. And Satan attacked. Now, Morris, the commentator Morris writes this, he says, Satan had been unable to corrupt the family of Noah before the flood, although he succeeded with all other families. And now he seized his opportunity. That's really what takes place here. Satan seizes his opportunity. And Noah here is found in this position where he's tempted. And he falls into sin. Noah corrupts himself here with wine. And the sad result is drunkenness and nakedness. Now, Noah probably had no intention of drinking to excess. He probably didn't. He probably had no intention of getting drunk. But he did. As is so often the case when people partake of alcohol. They have no intention of getting drunk, but they soon find themselves in that state. Because alcohol, of course, is a narcotic. It's a drug. And when the brain is affected by alcohol, people lose self control. And that's exactly what happens here with Noah, isn't it? He loses self control. In his intoxicated state here, Noah throws off his clothes and he falls down drunk, asleep in his tent. Just go back there to Genesis chapter 9, verse 21. <clears throat> It says, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and, and he was uncovered within his tent. And then in verse 24, it says, and Noah awoke from his wine. And so make no doubt about it. He's intoxicated to the point where he's thrown off his clothes and he falls down drunk asleep. He's in a drunken sleep inside his tent. You know, Noah here proved the truth of Proverbs chapter 20, just turn over there, Proverbs chapter 20, Noah's actions prove the truth of God's word, Proverbs chapter 20, Proverbs 20 verse 1, says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, so that's what happened here with Noah. No one partakes. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And he that partakes is not wise. He shows lack of wisdom here. And then in chapter 23 of Proverbs as well. Another passage I'm sure we know well. Proverbs 23 verse 29. It says this, Who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath contentions, who hath babbling, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of eyes. They that tarry long at the wine... They that go to seek mixed wine, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Again, Noah's actions prove the truth of this passage here, don't they? Okay, Noah, he drank and he indeed was intoxicated. And he finds himself in a position he shouldn't have been. He's bitten by the serpent there. God warns us about this, doesn't he? Verse 31 here, God says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his colour in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. God clearly warns us about the dangers of drinking, the dangers of alcohol. He warns us not to be drawn in by it, not to be drawn in by the temptation and find ourselves in this position Like Noah. You know, the excuse always is, but I never get drunk. I only ever have one drink. I know when to stop. You know, even one glass begins to affect our state of mind, doesn't it? One glass begins to lower our inhibitions, begins to affect our judgment, our thinking. You know, as I said, Noah probably thought the same thing. He probably thought he knew when to stop. And the next thing he knows... He's lying drunk, asleep, naked in disgrace. This is the same Noah who is the preacher of righteousness. This is the same Noah who had been God's instrument of salvation for his household. And now he's in this drunken state and his testimony is now going to be greatly affected because of it. All because he partook of alcohol in the first place. You see, this is a sad story to read. It really is. It's a sad story to read in the Word of God. You know, God's Word never hesitates to record for us the failures of even the godliest of men. You notice that? God's Word never fails to do that. God always records these things. Why? Why does God record the failings of these godly men? Well, it's because it's a warning for us, isn't it? It's a warning for us, it's an example for us. Paul talks about that in the New Testament. Go to first Corinthians with me. First Corinthians chapter ten. First Corinthians ten, verse six. It says this. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be your idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. They let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now Paul talks about the fact that the failings of these Old Testament saints, they're written for our warning, aren't they? They're written for us to warn us. So we might not make those same mistakes. And the reality is that unless we are careful, unless we are on our guard, as Peter says, unless we're sober and vigilant... We will find ourselves in the same position as these godly men. Falling into sin and finding our testimony in tatters. As Paul declares there in verse 12, he says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. We need to always remember that, don't we? We need to remember that we think we stand when we need to take heed. Take heed, be watchful lest we fall. And find ourselves in that same position. So we see Noah's disgrace. Now, secondly, this morning we see Ham's disrespect. We see Ham's disrespect. Go back there to chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 22. <clears throat> it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. As we read on now, we find that Ham comes to visit his father. He comes to visit his father and he he enters into the tent and he finds his father in this drunkard, naked state. Now, Noah probably thought he was alone that day as he drank his wine. He probably thought there was no chance of him being found as he became intoxicated. He probably had no idea of anyone coming by that day. And I say that because if he, if he did, surely he would have been more careful, wouldn't he? And so he probably had no idea that Ham was going to come by that day. He thought he was alone. But this unexpected visit from Ham ensures that his sin, his shame, doesn't go unnoticed. His sin, his shame, gets found out, doesn't it? Now, we're well, told the reason why Ham comes to visit his father. Um, as I was reading this week, this event probably takes place quite a few years after the flood, perhaps even a few decades after the flood, because Ham's children are all born by now, and Canaan is the smallest, the, the, the last of the four. And so... It's likely this is an extended period after the flood, so they've all probably moved away from each other, and so he's come to visit his father. We're not told why he's done this. We're not told why when he, he arrives at his father's tent, he proceeds to enter in without being invited in. You know, Perhaps when he called out and he received no answer, he became concerned. He became worried that maybe something had happened to his father, and so he, he entered in to, ch- to check on him. Another question that might be asked here is, did he know that his father was drinking that day? Well, we don't know. These are questions we can't answer. We're not told in the word of God. But one thing that is for certain is that the way that Ham reacts here upon finding his father in this state is disrespectful and sinful. Now, as Ham entered into the tent... He's surprised to find his father lying naked, drunk, asleep on the ground or on the bed there. He's surprised by this sight, but he does more than just see the sight. You see, the word translated saw there in verse 22, it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. That word translated saw means that he gazed at And it's evidently that he gazed at with satisfaction. You see, the word means to joyfully gaze upon someone. That's the whole idea of that word. To joyfully gaze upon. And so the point is that he took pleasure and delight in seeing his father in this state. He took pleasure and delight in that. Now, some commentators have here interpreted this account to mean that Ham experienced homosexual lust and that he even committed a gross, immoral act against his father. And I arrive at this conclusion because in verse 24, it says, And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And so they put the two together, okay, that Ham saw his father's nakedness. And then in verse 24, it says that Noah knew what he had done unto him and they interpret this to mean that Noah awoke and was aware that this gross immoral act had taken place. But we need to realize that the passage doesn't say this. Okay? The passage doesn't say this. It's reading into and it's adding to the passage that something that's not clearly there. It's not there. This interpretation to me seems to be completely unwarranted. It's one I'm sure we've all heard as we've read this passage and read commentators. Uh, But it seems to be completely unwarranted. There is no clear indication in the passage that that's what takes place. Rather instead, what this passage I believe records for us is Ham's complete lack of respect for his father. That's really what it records. You see, when Ham finds his father in this sinful state, as I said, he takes pleasure in the sight before him. He finds joy in his father's shame. He's he's excited about it. He's excited about the fact that his father has fallen. His godly father has fallen in such a way. Now Weasby writes this, he says, How people respond to the sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of their character. Ham could have peeked into the tent, quickly sized up the situation and covered his father's body, saying nothing about the incident to anyone. He could have reacted like that, couldn't he? And that would have said a lot about his character. But that's not how he reacts at all. Instead, when he sees this sight, as I said, with joy, taking pleasure in it, he then runs to tell his brothers, to spread the news. Okay, verse 22, it says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren withouts. The words there, and told his two brethren without, they literally mean that he told them with delight. And so he's taken pleasure in seeing his father like this. And now he runs to tell his brothers and he tells them with delight, with pleasure, with excitement about what's happened. He finds such joy in the shame of his father that he rushes to tell his brothers, thinking that they will share in his satisfaction. You know, that leads us to ask the question, what causes a son to respond with such disrespect towards his father? Why does, why does Ham find such pleasure in finding his father in this state? Well, it seems that there is a deep carnal and rebellious bent in Ham's nature. That's really what it speaks to us about. That there is a, a rebellious nature there, there is this carnality there. You see, it would seem that he takes pleasure in seeing his righteous, morally upright father in this state because it effectively frees him from his father's restraint, doesn't it? How can can Noah tell him off next time when Noah, he knows what Noah was up to. He knows the, the shame of Noah. You see, consider the fact that for years Noah has taught his sons right and wrong. Noah is the patriarch of the family, isn't he? And I'm sure that after the flood, Noah is determined to make sure his family does not degrade into what was before the flood. He's been set an example. And by his godly leadership, he has, if you like, been restraining sin. And so when Ham finds his father in this state, and he rejoices about it, it shows us that he has a deep resentment for his father and his authority. And he basically sees this as an opportunity now or an excuse to rebel and to throw off all restraint. And Morris writes this, he says, This was, an, this was apparently a carnal and rebellious bent to Ham's nature, thus far restrained by the spiritual strength and patriarchal authority of his father. Now, however, beholding the evidence of his father's human weakness, before his very eyes he rejoiced, no doubt feeling a sense of release from all the inhibitions, which had until now suppressed his own desires and ambitions. You see, he'd been restraining himself, but now he sees his father like this, and he sees it as a reason to lash out. And as we'll see next time with the prophecy, concerning Ham and his descendants, we see there is a carnality to their descendants, which is why there is a curse upon them. There is a carnality see, truly, Ham's reaction here shows us his true character, doesn't it? It shows us that he's rebellious, he's resentful, and he has a complete lack of respect for his father, but most importantly, it shows us his spiritual condition, doesn't it? It shows us his rebellion towards God and his unbelief as well. And that brings us now to his brothers. And we see thirdly this morning, Shem and Japheth's decency. Their decency. Look in verse 23. It says, And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. You see, Shem and Japheth's reaction is completely different to that of Ham. They didn't find delight in hearing this news at all. They weren't pleased to hear their father had, had done something and. and and drunk, got drunk and naked and made a fool of himself. They weren't pleased to hear this. They didn't rush to Noah's tent to, to, to look for themselves and to see this sight and take pleasure in it. Instead, what we find is that their reaction is one of love and respect, isn't it? One of love and respect, one of decency towards their father. In verse 23, we, we see they do rush to the tent, They rushed to the tent, but they rushed there for a completely different reason, do not they? They rushed there to cover their father's shame. Okay, read it again. It says, And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. They entered the tent backwards. They refused to even look even look at their father in this state, and instead they put the garment between them, they walk backwards in and lay it upon Noah. What a contrast they are to him. Complete contrast, isn't it? Completely different attitude, completely different response. They wouldn't even look upon their father's nakedness, let alone take pleasure in it. Now, what a rebuke this must have been to Ham! I'm sure they probably said some words to Ham as well, but their actions... Speak louder than words if you like. It's a rebuke to Ham and his actions. You know, he'd come to them sharing with delight and satisfaction what he'd seen, excited, thinking that they would respond the same way. But instead they showed great respect and love towards their father. You know, they practiced the truth of Proverbs chapter ten. Let's turn over there, Proverbs ten. <clears throat> In Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, it says, Hatred stirreth up stripes, but love covereth all sins. And then in chapter 17, a similar verse. Chapter 17 of Proverbs verse 9, it says, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth fr- very friends. You see, they practice the truth of Proverbs. They covered their father's shame. That doesn't mean that they excused it. It doesn't mean they condoned it either. But rather they refused to revel in it. They refused to take pleasure in it and they refused to expose it unto everyone else and destroy their father's reputation. They refused to to see it as an opportunity to gossip and spread it around. They in love covered his shame. You know the reaction of Shem and Japheth here is an example to all of us as believers. You see, when someone sins and we know about it or we find out about it, our reaction should not be that we take delight in their failure. We should not react like Ham, taking delight in their failure, or that we we seek like Ham to expose them. Run around and tell everyone else, have you heard the news? Such and such, this one is godly, they've fallen, they've done this. Let's spread it around. That is a completely wrong and ungodly response, isn't it? Rather, our response should be one of love and concern. Keep it to ourselves and in love seek to help that brother or sister who's fallen into sin. Now, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about how we should restore these ones in love. Just turn over there, Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 it says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Paul tells us to restore them in love and meekness. You see, we need to realize that like them, we're just sinners, aren't we? Saved by grace. We're sinners just like they are. Saved by grace. And we could very well find ourselves in the exact same position as them, but for the grace of God. And so what a fellow believer who is struggling with sin needs is for us to come alongside and help them. Maybe lovingly rebuke them. You know, and, and seek to help them, seek to work with them. Show them that there is forgiveness with the Lord. Seek to restore them in love. We shouldn't seek to expose their sin and their shame and destroy their testimony. Now one commentator wrote this, he said, the overtaken ones need to be restored. They are not to be ignored. They are not to be excused. They are not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. And that should be our first desire, to restore them in love. Now, sometimes they don't want to be restored and they want to keep flaunting it and that's when we've got to distance ourselves, don't we? But we should always seek to restore them in love. Restore these ones who, like Noah, have fallen in sin, found themselves in a place of shame and regrets. Seek to restore them in love. You know, all too often, all too often, the reaction among Christians is like hands, isn't it? All too often, that's the reaction. We take pleasure in the shame of others and we broadcast the news of their failure. We seek to destroy them. And sadly, when we react like this, we are not being Christ like at all, are we? We're not being Christ like. And so, may the Lord help us daily to remember God's love and God's forgiveness towards us so that we then might show that same love and that same forgiveness unto others around us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word does record, uh, Lord, the failures of even the most godly men. Lord, it shows us, Lord, that we all struggle with sin. And Lord, it's a warning unto us to be on our guard, to be sober, to be vigilant. But Lord, we thank you that when we do fall, Lord, that you, you love us, that there is forgiveness to be found. Uh, in you and we thank you for that and Lord may you help us to respond as believers to respond like Shem and Japheth and Lord in love seek to restore others when they fail as well Lord help us to remember the truths of your word this morning we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Mm -hmm.